Welcome to the Impact Nations podcast. This is episode 544. My name is Tim. I am your host, and we're doing things a little bit differently today. You may have noticed if you're watching. Uh, we've got uh, Dad in studio with me at the beginning here uh, because we are welcoming a very special guest teacher this week. Uh, our guest this week is Brian Zond. He is a prolific author, uh, pastor, uh, well-known speaker globally, and also happens to be speaking at a conference that you might have heard about that's coming up. Welcome, Brian, to the podcast. Podcast. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. We're really glad to have yeah, you We're today. glad to have you, Brian. Um, in the past, you have been a guest on this podcast, and we just fired questions back and forth, but we'd heard a rumor that you kind of are an expert on a particular chapter in Matthew, and that happens to be this week in our podcast, so we thought, well, heck, why don't we just go straight to the expert? <laughs> yeah, experts a little bit. That's pressure. Let's say I'm conversing. <laughs> All right, fair enough. <laughs> well, I'm really looking forward to this. So we're going to pass it right off to you. Uh, Brian's going to teach for a little bit on Matthew chapter 24, and then uh, we're going to just get some time in dialogue and ask some some additional questions after that. So uh, thanks, Brian. I guess I'll say take it away. All right, thank you. Well, Matthew 24, this is what is known as the Olivet Discourse, because it is a teaching prophecy given by Christ upon the Mount of Olives that will come up here in a minute. We'll see how that works. Now, the Olivet Discourse is in all three synoptic Gospels, Mark, Matthew, Luke. I say them in that order because even though they're not arranged in that order in our New Testament, that's the order they were written. We're almost certain about the. We're absolutely certain that Mark was the first written. And then you have Matthew. Mark probably, now we're being a bit more speculative, probably written 71, 72, maybe written from Rome, maybe with, well, the earlier prime source being Peter. Peter by now would have been executed under Nero, but it looks as though Mark may have been writing from Rome about 71, 72. Matthew comes a little later. Luke comes following that, maybe as late as 80. Now, what's interesting, I mean, everything everything about the Olivet Discourse is interesting, that's for sure. And it's also one of the more problematic passages in the New Testament that if we don't get it wrong, uh, there's a lot of implications of getting that passage wrong. What's interesting that I started to mention is that, you know, we have the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, synoptic meaning similar that they, they follow a similar trajectory. They're quite similar. Uh, John's a bit of a different animal. And so, you know, they basically follow the same narrative arc, and you have a lot of the same things. But there are no passages that are more similar than the Olivet Discourse in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. I mean, even the passion narratives and the resurrection accounts differ more than what we have set forth in Matthew, Mark, Luke, that is Matthew 24. That's what we're going to look at, but it's also in Mark 13. It's also in Luke 21. And they're they're all different, but they're more similar than any other passage. And it's interesting that it's clear that Matthew and Luke are drawing upon Mark as their basic template. Uh, And I assume, although I'm not certain, no one is, that that Luke may have been aware of Matthew's gospel, but clearly he was aware of Mark's gospel. But what's interesting is they do not feel compelled to 
exactly replicate what has already been written in Mark's gospel. They have a distinct liberty to alter, to approach it a little bit different, to, to present it in slightly altered fashions to um, achieve their own theological agenda. And that's something you have to remember about the gospel writers. They are not journalists. I mean, yes, they're reporting things that have occurred, but that it, they're, not, they're not operating as journalists near as much as they're operating as theologians. They have their own theological agenda that they are pushing toward. All right, we're going we're gonna to go to Matthew 24 here in just a moment. I want, though, to set the stage by taking a running start at this. I want to back up a little bit before we actually get to the Olivet Discourse to something that would happen maybe, well, the first passage maybe a few months before Jesus gives the Olivet Discourse and the other uh, probably like two days before. And so I'm going to actually start in Luke, but we'll get to Matthew 24. I'm going to begin, and by the way, I'm using the NRSV, the New Revised Standard Version is what I'm using here, because we're going to have a whole chapter's worth of Scripture. And so in Luke chapter 13, verse, uh, I have to find it here, verse 34, um, Jesus says this. And this is during a time when Jesus is on his way to the, the, the uh, synoptic gospels work basically like this. Their narrative arc is uh, you have maybe some account of the birth of Jesus. Mark really doesn't do that, but Matthew and Luke certainly do. And then you have Jesus' baptism and his public ministry, mostly in Galilee, up until the transfiguration. And then at the transfiguration, which is one since kind of a high watermark, uh, everything now is pretty much the journey, the final journey to Jerusalem where the whole passion is going to occur. And so Jesus is on this journey to Jerusalem with his 12 apostles, but with other disciples and, and eventually just the people that are on their way as pilgrims for the Feast of Passover. And Jesus says this, Luke 13, 34, Jerusalem, Jerusalem the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often have I desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you. And I tell you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. So this casts Jerusalem in a certain sense of doom. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered you, protected you as a hen protects her chicks, but you're not willing and your house is left to you. Uh, I think it's, this also occurs maybe in Mark and it's your house is left desolate. And so there, there's sort of a foreshadowing that there's some kind of doom awaiting Jerusalem. Now we go a little further in the story. Now we've actually reached uh, the triumphal entry, Palm Sunday. And I'm going to begin reading Luke 19. I'll start in verse uh, 41. <clears throat> By the way, well, I'll, I'll start it now. Make my comment. Uh, Luke 19, 41, as Jesus drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. 
I don't know if you know this. I know Jerusalem very well. I've been to Jerusalem something like 25 times and often, you know, a week or two at a time. So, you know, I've I've lived a year of my life in Jerusalem at least. And uh, the route that comes down the Mount of Olives that was would have been the route of the triumphal entry. I, I'm not exaggerating. When I say I, I'm probably getting close to I've walked it a hundred times. So I know it very well. And uh, about halfway down the Mount of Olives, as you move toward the what would have been then the eastern gate in Jerusalem, there's a there's a Franciscan chapel that is more or less shaped in the form of a teardrop, and it provides one of the best views of the city of Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. And it's, you know, I mean, we don't know what the spot was, but the idea of this chapel is to commemorate this moment when Jesus sees the city and weeps over it. So, you know, you're familiar with Palm Sunday and the jubilation that the Galilean pilgrims, as they enter the city, they're waving their palm branches, they're shouting Hosanna, they're saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel, which, of course, is entirely dangerous and provocative. Um, this, this is, in one sense, the beginning of a kind of uprising. Now, I think that most of them believe that it will be literally, eventually, a violent insurrection to overthrow the governor, Pilate, King Herod, uh, the high priest Caiaphas, and installed Jesus as the kind of king they could understand immediately, that is just simply replacing King Herod. And it, we know it doesn't go that way. That was never Jesus' mission. Jesus told them that, but no one seemed to know it. So you have this juxtaposition of great joy among these Galilean Passover pilgrims coming with Jesus into the city, but Jesus is not rejoicing. He's weeping. As Jesus came near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, If you, even you, had known the things that make for peace, but now they are indeed hidden from your eyes. Indeed, the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up ramparts around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. They will crush you to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave with they will not leave within you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation from God. And so this actually, this actually provides most of the drama of that final week. That Jesus is arriving in Jerusalem, heralded as the true king of Israel, uh, and there is this Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, into Friday, confrontation, where Jesus is repeatedly in various ways proclaiming the end. That is the end of the temple age, the temple aristocracy, uh, the temple system, and the temple itself. That, that it's entering now its final phase, and eventually it's all going to be gone. And this creates a lot of tension and a lot of resistance to Jesus. So that's, I wanted to set it up like that. And now let's indeed, let's indeed go to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew 24, verse 1. As Jesus came out of the temple and was going away, his disciples came to point out to him, the buildings of the temple. 
All right, I've already mentioned that Mark was the first of the synoptic gospels or any of the gospels to be penned. And Mark, more than anyone else, is very consistent in his chronology. Mark is where you actually can kind of figure out what was happening every day. And as Matthew and Luke, and particularly John, become more theologically motivated, they kind of some, sometimes move things around. But it's clear that, you know, of course, the triumphal entry is on a Sunday, Palm Sunday. Um, and it looks as if the events that we're looking at today probably happened on Tuesday, probably, of what we call Holy Week. And during that time, this is what Jesus was doing. He was daily going into the temple. On Mondays, the cleansing of the temple. We call it the cleansing of the temple. It's not a cleansing. It is a prophetic protest, or maybe more accurately, a symbolic or prophetic destroying of the temple. See, Jesus is, is pronouncing judgment upon the temple as he overturns the tables of the money changers and those that sold doves. And then he takes a whip, according to John, and drives the sheep and the cattle out. And it's, it's a statement of judgment. Remember um, that, as, that as Jesus comes on Monday, he, he sees a fig tree, and then he curses the fig tree, and then he goes in. Okay, the, the fig tree is, sim, is, is symbolic of maybe Jerusalem as a whole, but particularly the temple, that it's not producing the fruit, and eventually it's, it's going to fall under judgment. And so what Jesus is doing is he daily goes into the temple, and the temple's enormous, the temple complex, and he's teaching, but he doesn't stay in the city. Why? Because it's dangerous. He knows. I mean, there is already a plot afoot to arrest him and have him executed. And so Jesus doesn't stay in the city. He goes back and, and stays in uh, Bethany, which is uh, it's, it's a 45-minute walk from maybe a little less. He probably walked faster than most people do. <laughs> you know, from the temple to Bethany, 30 minutes, maybe something like that. And so every morning, and he's, he's staying there at the home of Martha and Mary and Lazarus. They're obviously wealthy. I mean, this is, this is, the, this is the Mary that anoints him on Wednesday night with ointment that's worth a year's wage for a laborer. So they're, they're clearly affluent people. They probably have some large villa, and they can house all Jesus' disciples. And so they're staying in Bethany, but day by day, in the morning, Jesus comes in and teaches in the temple. He does that on Tuesday. He's in the temple. Uh, he teaches some things. We won't go into what all that was, but Mark is the one that will make it clear for you. And then as they're leaving, we read that his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. Well, this is not just the temple. This is the temple complex. You understand we, we have we have a, you know we have around the year, I mean this is very rough, maybe nine, let me think it here through about roughly circa 960 BC, Solomon's temple is erected. And it stands until 587 BC when it is destroyed by the armies of Nebuchadnezzar. And then couple of generations later, it's rebuilt under Zerubbabel, but it's a humble temple. I mean, it's it has the same dimensions as Solomon's temple, but it, it's not as ornately or, uh, you know, decorated and all of that. And so 
So it's kind of a, it's sort of a step backward from Solomon's temple. And then you have the arrival of King Herod, Herod the Great, the, the founder and father of the Herodian dynasty. And this guy, man, we could spend an hour on that cat. <laughs> what a complex man. Uh, he was he was not a good guy. He was a bad guy, but he was a great guy. You understand what I'm saying? Morally, spiritually, he's corrupt. Uh, but as a builder, uh, he and as a general prior to that, he was he was great in the sense that the world will use the term great. And there, if there's one thing that he really could do very well, and that was build. I mean, to this day, whenever you're in what we call the Holy Land, the, the mark of Herod the Great is still there in all of these buildings, whether it's Caesarea or Masada or the tomb that he built outside of Bethlehem for himself, an artificial mountain that is the highest mountain in the Judean hills, and it's man-made. He built a mountain for his tomb. It's incredible. Well, Herod worked on the temple complex for 48 years, only ending with his death in 4 BC. He just kept expanding, expanding, expanding. Um, Part of which, I mean, I think he liked to build and there was ego and all that, but he was always trying to ingratiate himself to the Jewish people so they would accept him as their true king. And it never worked. They never did because he wasn't even fully Jewish. He was Idumean. And um, he just thought if I can build them a grand enough temple, the, the Jews will finally embrace me. They never did. Uh, but he built a great temple, a great temple complex with his, all its colonnades and plazas and and Solomon's portico and the Antonio Fortress and all. It, 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 to this day, the ruins of it are impressive. I mean, when you are there, you go, OK, I get it. This was the kind of thing that would take your breath away, even today. So you can imagine what it's like for a peasant villager from, you know, Upper Galilee for the first time to arrive and see something like that. And so the disciples have been there many times, no doubt, or I assume you know, they've been on other Passover pilgrimage, but pil pilgrimages, but they're just impressed. And they're, they're saying, look, look at those buildings, just look at them. And what does Jesus say? Yeah, we're ready for verse two. I'm watching the time here. We'll have to pick up speed, but we're, we're going to be all right. Uh, verse two. Then he asked them, you see all these things, do you? Do you not? Truly, I tell you, not one stone will be left here upon another. All will be thrown down. Okay. All right. And that's, that's enormous. I'm, I'm trying to come up with, a, with a, a modern parallel, a modern equivalent. You know, and it's hard for me to, because it's hard for us to understand how significant the temple was in the Jewish psyche. I mean, this is the center of the universe. This is everything. And it is impressive what Herod has done. But Jesus says, yeah, see it? Yeah, it's all coming down. Not, not one stone left upon another. It's going to be destroyed. This would be shocking. This would be jarring. This also is echoes of Jeremiah, who 600 years earlier, is prophesying the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple under Nebuchadnezzar that comes about. And, and that's, by the way, where we first get phrases like, uh, well, it's going to go down into Gehenna. Ge Gehenna, the Valley of Hinnom, is the valley to the south of Jerusalem. I mean, just, I mean, I don't mean south. I mean, it's, it's a valley 
right at the foot of Jerusalem that was used for the garbage dump. It's where the fires were not quenched and the worm, the maggots in the garbage and all of that don't die. Um, and Jeremiah says, this whole city's going to become a Gehenna. And that later informs how we talk about what gets translated hell using a Norse word, but it's that's not helpful. Uh, so, so Jesus is kind of a second Jeremiah in one sense. And he's telling them, I know this looks all so substantial and impressive and eternal, but mm-mm, it's all going to come down, not one stone left upon another. Okay, so now they're, now they're heading back. They're, they're going back to Bethany, but to go back to Bethany, you cross the Mount of Olives. It's a steep climb up. You know, there's, there's a path, and you're, but you're going up. And, they're, and when you're on the Mount of Olives, it's almost impossible not to be there. And just stop for a little bit and look at the city because it's just such a, uh, a wonderful place to gain a panoramic vision of the city then and now. When he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, you know, I mean, maybe, you know, you sit down for it, going up and steep. <laughs> when he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, it'd be just opposite the city. The disciples came to him privately and said, tell us, when will this be? And what will be the sign of your coming? And of the end of the age. Okay. As, if we're not careful, we're going to get thrown off right off the bat. Because we hear disciples talking to Jesus about your coming. And we think second coming. And we hear end of the age and we think maybe like end of the world or something. It's not what's really going on here. Um, The disciples at this point are not thinking of a second coming. They're thinking of Jesus, his coming into the fullness of his kingdom. That is where he's finally arrived. He's come to Jerusalem to become king. Okay, That's why they're there. Only Jesus seems to understand that he's going to be enthroned upon a cross, and his crown will be made of thorns, and his kingdom will come through death, not by imposing death on others. He's pretty much told them that plainly, but it hasn't, it just hasn't registered. And so they're talking about, well, so so they may be anticipating, I think they may be anticipating that somehow Jesus is going to be behind destroying the temple. And there's language like that in John, but it's but it's uh full of double entendres, where Jesus is talking about the temple of his own body that will be destroyed and three days later raised up. But there is a sense in which, and this is so important that the temple of the body of Christ is going to replace this temple made of stone. There's going to be a new temple of living stone, but it also is going to involve at some point the loss of the old stone temple. And so the end of the age is not the end of the world. It's the end of the temple age, the end of the temple itself, the temple establishment, the temple system, all of that is going to come to an end. And they say, when? When is this end that has to do with your coming to be the true king? When does that happen? Great question, right? Uh, Verse, what are we ready for here? Verse, um, whatever it is. Three, there's three. Where's verse four? Uh, Jesus answered them, beware that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Messiah, and they will lead many astray. So 
Jesus is beginning to beginning to answer their question. When's the temple going to end? When is it going? When is the temple age? The whole temple age and the temple itself going to end? And he says, "Well, okay, let's let's slow down here. Uh, many are going to come in my name, claiming to be Messiah. This is not people coming trying to say like like you would have a modern person today saying like some lunatic, I am Jesus. They're not coming and saying I am Jesus. What they're saying is I'm the Messiah. They're saying for I mean, you understand that that from about from about 20 BC all the way up until 166 AD, so 180 years, um, there was just wave after wave after wave of Jewish Messiah. People claiming that I'm the, I am the true king of Israel sent by God. And Jesus is saying, look, there's going to be another wave of these people claiming to be who you already have confessed me to be. And by revelation, no, I am. There's going to be others. And for example, uh, one of the more famous ones would be Simon Bargiria, G-I-O-R-A. Simon Ben-Guria, Guria, something like that. I think it's it's spelled G-I-O-R-A. It means Simon the Strong. And he he was one of the more, quote, successful false messiahs. He's involved in the in the first Jewish war. And he claimed to be Messiah. A lot of people followed him. He ended up dying in 71. He was first captured, and then he was taken to Rome, and then he was paraded in the triumph, and then was executed near the Temple of Jupiter in Rome. So, there, But there's going to be many of these. So I'm the Messiah. I'm the, I'm the one that's sent by God. I'm the one that's going to deliver Israel. I'm the one that's the true king. I'm the one that Isaiah was talking about. There's going to be a bunch of those, and their work. I mean, you you know, you can read about it. Uh, verse six, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place first, but the end is not yet. What end are we talking? Not the end of the world, the end of the temple. That's what this is all about. When is the temple going to end? Well, this is well, there's going to be a wave of false messiahs, and then there's going to be wars and rumors of wars, and there's going to be things like this happening, but the end doesn't come immediately, not yet. The first Jewish war broke out up in northern, not far from Caesarea, in in the year 66. So probably, and it's it's strange that we don't have the, Jesus almost certainly was crucified in either 30 or 33, and there's all kinds of scholarly debate back and forth. Probably more scholarship leans towards 30, but could be 33. And so there's, so we're talking, um, you know, 36 years later. This first Jewish war. This is this is the Jewish revolt against Rome, and initially it was successful. I mean, they had some initial victories until Rome just was fed up with them. I mean, they were never go- they were never going to win this war, and that's why Jesus warned them about going down that path of violent uh, revolution and thinking God is going to be on our side. Jesus warns them, and that's why he weeps over this. Oh, that you'd known the things that make for peace, but they're hidden from your eyes. And one day they're going to put up rampart. Okay, so the war breaks out in 66, but the end isn't yet. In fact, the war went all the way to 73. The end of the temple happens in 70. Spoiler alert, I just let you know what's coming here. So three and a half years, it was a seven-year war, right in the middle, three and a half years, right in the middle of it. Um, 
the temple's destroyed. This gets worked into the book of Revelation, but that's outside of our discussion for today. Um, <clears throat> verse 7, for nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All this is the beginning of the birth pangs. This is talking about the tumultuous events of the 60s, not the 1960s, the 60s. <laughs> And there were a lot of tumultuous events in the Roman Empire. There was a crop failure in Egypt, which is the breadbasket for the for um, for, for the Roman Empire. There was a deadly plague that broke out in the city. Just lots of just wave after wave of bad stuff also worked into the book of Revelation that occurs in the 60s. By the way, the book of Revelation is clearly set. You can I, I'm not going to go into why I know this or how I, I but I could show it to you. But. We're not in Revelation, but it's set in the year 69. So it's very clear that that's what John the Revelator is doing. Um, verse 9, then they will hand you over to be tortured, and you will be put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. All right, this, this is this is Book of Acts stuff. This is, uh, uh, and this is in the Book of Acts, but for most of this is set in Jerusalem. Uh, James the Just, he's the pastor, the bishop of the Church of Jerusalem, the very first church, and the brother of Jesus. Uh, James the Just is put to death in 62. Uh, of course, Peter and Paul have been executed in, uh, in Rome under Nero Caesar, you know, a few years earlier. I'm going to read, I'm read uh, Luke's account of this very same thing. I just read Matthew 24, 9. Let me read you Luke 21, 12. This is how it's put in Luke's gospel. Of course, Luke is also the author of the book of Acts. He renders it like this. Before all this occurs, they will arrest you and persecute you. They will hand you over to synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors because of my name. Oh, that's, that's book of Acts stuff. You know, Paul being brought before Felix and Agrippa and all that sort of stuff. So, uh, Jesus is saying before the end, what, what end are we talking about? The end of the temple. Before the end of the temple, uh, and he's talking directly to the disciples. This isn't necessarily to the whole wide world. He's saying you, Peter and James and John, you, th that inner circle that will later include his brothers, uh, you're, you're going to be persecuted and you're going to be, some of you are going to be killed. And um, this is going to happen before that. Before the end comes, verse 10, then many will fall away and they will betray one another and hate one another. You know, um, there's some, sometimes there's a romantic notion that persecution, you know, produces great heroic faith. Well, <laughs> unless it doesn't, you know, I mean, the study of persecution, you know, uh, lethal persecution of the church throughout the last 2000 years, wherever it's occurred. Yes, you do have your heroic martyrs. But you have an awful lot of people that found they weren't up to it, and you have a lot of falling away. And this, and you, and it created one of the controversies in the church. There were there were bishops who, at various waves of persecution, uh, especially like during the persecution under Diocletian, uh, capitulated, and you know maybe signed off on some things you know that they shouldn't have. But then when the persecution was over, they come back to their position of bishop. And then the controversy was, uh, the, these are the Donatists. Some believed that these bishops could know that if you were baptized under one of those bishops that had 
committed apostasy and then returned, that your baptism was illegitimate. And uh, Augustine fights that war, and, and actually your baptism is not based upon the moral virtue of the person doing the baptizing, but upon in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so, yeah, so, so many do fall away. And, uh, and many false prophets, second time that's mentioned, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Again, more false prophets. Uh, verse 12, and because of the increase of lawlessness, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Again, this is set in Jerusalem. And as the war breaks out, the first Jewish war, there is a second one, but we're not, that's beyond our scope of discussion. Um, things got bad in Jerusalem pretty quick. And there were rival factions. The city was kind of controlled by gangs and, and they had each gang kind of had their own area of the city. I mean, there was the danger of the invading Roman army that's coming to crush the rebellion, but it was just as dangerous in the city because the Jews were actually fighting among themselves within the city about who was going to be in charge because they're still believing that God's going to come fight for them. And so each of them are putting forth their own Messiah. That's why there's false messiahs mentioned again. And they're trying to, it's just a hard time. And law and order is breaking down and uh, love is growing cold, but you still got to endure to the end. And this good news of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end, what end are we talking about? The end of the temple will come. Now, that's a strange one for us because we're sitting here going, well, I'm not even sure if it's been proclaimed in all the world yet. I don't know. And yet we know the end of the temple came. Well, this is just a different way they thought about it. Very clearly, the early church I'm not, you'll have to decide whether you think this is true or not, but I am like just historically reporting to you that which is the case. The early church, for example, the end of Matthew's gospel, you'll get there in a few weeks, uh, go into all the world, preach the gospel, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all that. Uh, the early church believed that that was, they used that text not for great commission stuff that we do, but to teach the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They believed that the nations that had the gospel preached to them through the first wave of the apostles. So they just believed that, that within the first few decades, that much had been done. Verse 15. So when you see the desolating sacrilege, or the, the abomination of desolation in other places, in the book of Daniel. So when you see the desolating sacrilege standing in the holy place, as was spoken by the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. And the reader's going, I don't understand. <laughs> what we're talking about is something out of the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel is a composition from the second century, probably 150, 160, something like that. But it's set. It's setting is much earlier in the fifth century BC. And there's a portion in there that is describing the historical event of the persecution of the Jews in Jerusalem under uh, uh, Antiochus IV of the Epiphanes. These were Seleucid kings who had control over Jerusalem. This is after the breakup of Alexander the Great's empire and it broke up into four under four generals, and then there's this, kind of, these are Greek Syrians who rule over Jerusalem, 
And the Jews always resisted Gentile domination. And there was, and Antiochus got in his head that he wanted this forced Hellenization. He just wanted to make the people become Greek. And so, you know, prohibiting circumcision, making them eat pork, all of that sort of stuff. And it leads to a rebellion. And part of Antiochus, the fourth Epiphanes, crushing of this rebellion involved causing the sacrifices in the temple to be stopped and in the holy place a uh, idol of Jupiter. This happened circa 167, 166 BC, somewhere in there. And so Jesus is saying here, there's going to be some kind of repetition of that. Just as Antiochus, a Gentile, defiled the temple, it's going to be defiled again. That's what's going on there. Uh, And then, so when you see that happen, when you see Gentiles encroaching upon the holy place, what are you to do? Verse 16, then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. The one on the housetop must must not go down on the housetop, must uh, not go down to take what is in the house. The one in the field must not turn back to get a coat. Woe to those who are pregnant, those who are nursing infants in, the, in those days. Pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. Okay, so when you see Gentile armies about to encroach upon the holy place, Jesus says, get out of town. Go, go, go. Leave that. No. Don't go down and get your coat. No, go, leave. Uh, well, in February of 70, the Roman 10th Legion under General Titus arrived, and there was a very large community of, you won't say Christians, that'd be an anachronism, uh, especially for here in Jerusalem, you would say uh, Jesus followers, those that confessed Jesus of Nazareth was the crucified, risen Messiah. They remembered these words. And by and large, by and large, the church in Jerusalem left. And they went to Pella, which is in Jordan, what we've called Jordan today. It's about a 90-mile journey. And they got because when Titus arrived and surrounded the city, um, he let anybody, if you wanted to leave, you could leave. And very few did. Those that were that believed and were familiar with the words of Jesus did. Most didn't. Josephus tells us about this. Because they believed that God was going to fight for them. And said instead, a city that was, yeah, you know, Jerusalem at this time is somewhere between 70 and 100,000 people. Typically, it would be much larger at Passover time. But the city swelled to probably over a million people because people were coming in. Ahead of the advancing Roman 10th Legion, they were rushing to the city believing that they would find safety there and and that there they would hold out and prevail against the Romans. Just the opposite of what Jesus told them to do. And so the city, and then after a time, after after the first offer of Roman general Titus to these citizens of Jerusalem, if you want to leave, you can leave. And some did, and then he says, okay, you'll never leave. And they created a siege one of the most cruel forms of warfare. We will, before we begin our war, how about we have uh, five months of starvation and pestilence? We'll just lock you in and see how, how well you do. Nothing comes in, nothing goes out. People tried to escape. People were constantly trying to escape. 
And every single one that tried to escape, they crucified until they ran out of trees. This is why Jesus weeps on the way to the cross. When the Remember the women of Jerusalem, they weep and over Jesus carrying his cross. And he says, oh, don't weep for me. Weep for your sons. Because if they do this in the green, what will they do in the dry? Jesus was not advocating violent revolution against Rome. But their sons would, and they would pay an awful price for it. And then, the, you know, pray that it's not in the winter because it's hard in the winter. Uh, just, you know, and say pray that it's not on the Shabbat because, you know, carrying your stuff and trying to get out of Jerusalem, that's, you know, you'll get stoned and it just makes it more difficult. Um, verse 21. For at that time, there will be great suffering, such as never been from the beginning of the world until now. No, never will be. Uh, it became hell. It became hell. You can read Josephus on this. I, I can't exaggerate. People would try to escape. And they would try to take some money with them by swallowing it. And pretty soon the Romans found it out. So everybody they found, they disemboweled while still alive, just for the fun of it, I guess, to see if they could find these coins. There was starvation, cannibalism, accounts of women, you know, eating their own babies. Jerusalem became a literal hell, such great suffering. When the city finally fell on August 10th, uh, AD 70, uh, Josephus reports much more, like in over a million. Most modern historical scholars think that's exaggerated, but probably the consensus of scholarship is somewhere in the neighborhood of 600,000 people died. 600, 600,000 in a day or two. Okay. 92,000 were captured and put into slavery and taken to Rome. Some of them were sold off at other slave markets. Many of them, though, were used to construct the Colosseum. I think the Colosseum ends up dedicating, oh, here, was it like 72? You can look that up. I don't remember exactly. But it was financed by the plundering of the temple in Jerusalem, and the slave labor was Jewish labor, labor from Jerusalem. So when people are talking about, you know, the temple's going to be rebuilt, yeah, it's already been rebuilt. It's the Colosseum in Rome. Okay, where are we here? Uh, great suffering. Verse 22, and if those days had not been cut short, no one would have been saved. Yeah, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. I mean, there is an end to it. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Messiah, or there he is, do not believe it for false messiahs. Third time. Um, and false prophets will appear to produce great signs and omens and lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Take note. I've told you beforehand. So if they come to you and say, look, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. This is one of the more difficult passages. I still don't think that's talking about second coming. I, will, I, I believe in a second coming. Christ shall come again to judge the living and the dead. I don't think that's what he's talking about here. I think there is a definite connection between the end of the temple, and the full establishment of the kingdom of Christ coming into the world. That the, that, that the temple age has ended, 
And now there's this age of the kingdom of Christ where the temple is no longer geographically located, but it is universal wherever two or more are gathered in his name. And it's made not of limestone, but of living stone, as Peter will use that kind of language. Another interesting verse, verse 28. Wherever the corpse is, there the, well, it says vultures in the NRSV will gather. Uh, it's funny. The, the word is not vulture. It just literally is not vulture. It is the word eagle. King James, New King James, NIV, David Bentley Hart, N.T. Wright, all translated as eagle because that's what it is. The word is uh, aitas, and it's the word eagle. The reason some English translators go, because ah, it's where the corpse is. And eagles aren't generally scavengers or birds of prey. So maybe it's like, uh, like a vulture that looks like an eagle. No, it's the word eagle because here's what's going on. Here's what's going on. The corpse is the city of Jerusalem itself because it's become dead. It's no longer, it's not producing the fruits of righteousness. And the eagles gather. What is that? That's you know, like it is today in America. The Roman legions had eagles atop their standards. So they're carrying their flags, their battle standards, and at the top of those flags, or the standards, were eagles. And Jerusalem is a corpse that has rejected the way of life, and now the eagles come, the Roman legions. Immediately, verse 29, immediately after the suffering of those days, oh, such suffering, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of heaven will be shaken. This is Jewish hyperbole that for the, the way they understood the world, it's come to an end. It's come crashing down. We've, again, we've lost our temple and 600,000 are, are, are killed and, and 92,000 are taken as slaves. We've lost it all again. Our world has come to an end. Verse 30, then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. And then they will, uh, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds with power and great glory. This is a reference to Daniel chapter 7. In fact, some of it's quoted directly from Daniel 7, where Daniel has a vision where he sees this parade of beasts. First a, lion, first, a, first a lion, then a bear, then a leopard, and then a, just a monstrous beast uh, that are wreaking havoc. And then finally, there comes one that is humane, a son of man, a human, who ascends in the clouds, this is Daniel 7 language, in the clouds up to heaven. And to this son of man, the ancient of days, God gives authority over all of the nations. That's Jesus, okay? And so the general interpretation is, is that you're seeing this parade of beastly empires, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome. But then finally, a humane one comes, a son of man who's not a beast. And he, by the ancient of days, is given dominion over the nations. Uh, verse 31, and he will send out his messengers with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to another. Angels, yeah, angels, but remember, that's also, that's also just the word messengers. I mean, it's, it's poetic language, but it's more like, and then the, the world evangelization begins to take place. Verse 32, from the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. 
So also when you see all these things, you know that, well, NRSV says he, but it is it. In King James, NIV, N.T. Wright, David Bentley Hart. We're not talking about he, it's talking about these events. It is near at the very gates. Truly, I tell you this. Here it is. Here it is, folks. Here, if you if you just if you like got so bored and you fell asleep, try to wake up now. <laughs> Verse thirty four. Jesus says, "Truly, I tell you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away." Hello. Hello. <laughs> Jesus, when will the end of the temple come and not one stone left upon another? Bottom line answer is, it'll be within this generation. This generation, in other words, people that are alive, Jesus is saying, speaking, let's say in the year AD 30, uh, he's saying people that are alive today, some of them will still be alive then. Yeah, it's 40 years later. This is not something about that's going to happen in 2022. This is about something that happened in AD 70 that is going to happen in the same generation that Jesus spoke. In. I mean, within that generation, this is going to so generation. Just understand it as if if some of the people that were alive in 30 are still alive in 70, the generation has not passed away. This generation will not pass away until all these things have taken all of the all of these things taken place. Heaven and earth pass away. My words will not pass away. We're going to speed up here and finish this up. But about that day and hour, no one knows, neither the angels of heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. That's a curious verse. I, I see that more or less. I mean, I'm hesitant. I'm a little nervous here. But, but I, I see this as Jesus saying, I don't know exactly when all this happens. Although I can say, well, it, yeah, the temple finally is destroyed in August 10th, AD 70. But this is before that. For as in the day, for as the days of Noah were, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing until the flood came and swept them all away. So too will the coming of the Son of Man will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two will be in the field, one will be taken, and one will be left. Two women will be grinding meal together, one will be taken, one will be left. Well, in this scenario, you don't want to be taken. You want to be left because what he's talking about is the invading Russian, uh, Russian, I say Russian, the <laughs> Ukraine, uh, the the invading Roman army was, you know, here's two men in the field and they grab one and one gets away and they enslave them. Here's two women at the grinding at the mill. One gets away, but one they capture and she's now a slave. So that's what that's what's being talked about here. Keep awake, therefore, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Again, I, I know it's a stretch for some of you because this is new, except it's old. Uh, that I think we have to connect the events of this generation that culminate you know, with the Second Jewish War and the destruction of the temple in AD 70 as, in one sense, the full coming of the kingdom of Christ into the earth. But I still believe you know, that somehow the age wraps up. This doesn't go on forever, he shall come again to judge the living and dead, but that's just not really what the Olivet Discourse is about. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, 
he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming in an hour unexpected. Uh, then it goes on into this parable that I'm just going to let you have with chapter 25 because it fits there better. But I want to go back to Luke one more time because Luke plays with that a little differently. He places that bit about um, whether servants are faithful or not in his absence and when the, and when the Son of Man arrives, what then occurs. Luke places that much earlier in Luke chapter 12. And in verse 37 of Luke 12, Jesus says, Blessed are those slaves whom the master finds alert when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will fasten his belt and have them sit down to eat, and he will come and serve them. Now, when does that happen? When does Jesus gird himself like a servant and wait? This is what happens in the upper room at the Last Supper. So the, the, the coming of the Lord is somehow stretched out between his arrival in Jerusalem, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and then the Last Supper where he's girding himself as a servant and serving the disciples all the way through to finally the full end of the temple age in AD 70. And now the temple of Yahweh is the body of Christ. Amen. And amen. I kept it under, under an hour, I think. So. <laughs> wow. Well, Brian, thank you so much. I, uh, I honestly, I'm so, I was making notes like crazy in my Bible here uh, because I think getting some of that historical context on this stuff is so helpful, so helpful. And it's hard because, you know, it's not there in our Bibles. We need somebody to, to bring it to us. And you've done that for us today. So and thank you. And it's such for that. a profound paradigm shift it's, yeah. for it's, most of us yeah, grew just, up just assuming absolutely. this was end time end stuff, time stuff yeah. and uh and until i don't know just a few years ago it's like of course somebody's going to heaven and somebody's staying behind <laughs> so it's it's a huge that's a paradigm. little bit of a mind bender when when that passage taken and left, you go, no, I want to be left. I want to be left behind. Please leave yeah. me behind. I want to be taken as a slave. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I would really change that whole book series. But anyway. Um, <laughs> left behind. Phew. Yeah. Oh, good. Yeah. <laughs> Um, hey, just before we jump into some questions, because there's there's so many things we could talk about here, uh, I just wanted to remind people, if if you've been having a great time like I have for the last 45 minutes or so listening to this teaching, uh, there is more of that. Uh, where this came from, and it's going to be in Albuquerque in May. Uh, please come. Uh, Brian, I'm really hoping you're coming. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because your name's on the flyers and everything. You Indeed. Know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, yeah, Brian's going to be teaching. Uh, Dr. Bradley Jerzak's going to be teaching. Uh, we got Dr. Cherith Nordling teaching. It's going to be an amazing time. And I, Brian, I understand you guys are, are all friends, but haven't you've you've been teaching t together for a little while but never actually physically in the same place at the same time is that right oh no i mean no that's not true <laughs> no okay i i mean i know you know brad is like my buddy yeah i mean we're, we're he's like one of my very best friends but um I, it's just because of the pandemic the last time i saw brad in the flesh was in New Zealand in February of 2020. Wow. Right. Uh, and then the, then we will see each other, Lord willing, and I believe yeah. the Lord is willing, in May in Albuquerque. And Cherith, I've met her several times in person. We've spoken at a lot of the same conferences. She's a 
man, she's a force. Yeah, she is. <laughs> oh, she's remarkable. She's yeah. a great intellect and a, a, a fiery preacher, both. Hmm. Uh, now, where we do see each other, we both participate in a weekly study of the book of Revelation, where yes. there's about eight of us that are involved in leading it, and some 900 people are signed up for it. And uh, Cherith, for example, she did Revelation 18 uh, last week. I'll be doing Revelation 19 on Thursday. So we see each other. We just we just haven't been able to see each other in person for a couple of years because mm-hmm. uh, you know why. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and that's been the case for the entire Impact Nations family. We all used to travel around the world together, and we've been stuck uh, stuck in our homes or our cities for quite yeah. some time for the same reason. So we're all getting together, uh, and we want uh, everybody to be here. Uh, there is uh, registration available right now at beautifulgospelconference.com. Uh, if you can't remember that, just go to impactnations.com. It's all over the place on our homepage there. Uh, register today. And by the way, uh, Brian, you don't know this, but uh, we are, uh, we've got a deal right now. There's still a few days left to go. Uh, if you register before March 1st, uh, then you are automatically entered to win uh, a little shopping spree on us. Uh, you get $100 worth of merchandise at the conference so uh we'll walk around with uh, the impact nations debit card and we will you shop at get some of brian's books some of brad's books get some uh some music uh, i know uh, our worship leader mike marshall is going to be selling some stuff there as well get a t-shirt whatever you want 100 bucks so if you register before march 1st uh you are automatically entered to win a hundred dollars worth of merchandise at the conference so uh that is uh reason enough to get on the website and go do it right now I'm I'm seriously looking forward to this. I mean, I'm like excited about it. Yeah. Just because I, I know I just know it's gonna be good. It is. Yeah. And Albuquerque is such a cool place, you know. So. it really is. It is. I I really like it here. I've been here for nearly five years now and I love it. We even built in on the Friday afternoon, we get some tour buses going up to Santa Fe, going to the tram. Yeah. Cause it is such a cool place. Yeah. You know, you know I'm cool. I'm gonna do that. Um I mean, not that probably, but I'm going to go to Santa Fe if I have to come yeah. out a, a little early. Yeah. Harry and I, I've been to Santa Fe one time and I was 19. <laughs> <laughs> and I still remember it. And Perry was with me. I mean, we weren't wow. married yet, but we were with a bunch of Jesus freaks on a bus that the starter went out that you had to get out and pushed every time. <laughs> I've been on that bus. Santa Fe. It was, Santa Fe is a great place for Jesus freaks in the 1970s, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and so I want to visit it again. And, and Perry's going to come with me. She way. is. Yeah. Oh, that's hmm. great. We were hoping that's for fantastic. that. That's good news. I love it. Yeah, we love Santa Fe. Um, Christina and I go up there uh, oh, several times a year. An hour just, away? Something yeah, like that. it's an hour yeah. away. So you yeah. just, hey, you want to go up for lunch and take the afternoon? And the most art galleries of any place per capita in North America yeah. and on mm. and on. Well, we should be getting away from my travel log and <laughs> yeah, back indeed. to your yeah. teaching. Are, but what come. Are the, what, are, what are the odds of me finding some good Mexican food? <laughs> <laughs> They're pretty good. <laughs> uh, all right. I, I've got a question for you, Brian, regarding something you said very early in your teaching today. You, you talked about the danger of of misinterpreting this passage or uh, mm. how you, you know, you can take this a very different direction. And I think uh, 
as you were teaching, it became clear that <laughs> traditionally, uh, traditionally in the last several hundred years anyway, uh, the church has uh, taught this passage differently. Certainly, it, it'd be very easy to read this passage, even with any outside influence, and read it, read into it, uh, end time theology in terms of you know what's going to happen when when it's all over. Why is it important that we re-examine this and really understand the historical context and and that is talking about an event that has already happened, not one that is yet to come? Two things. One, um, the passage can just be used for fear-mongering, and people are always dreading that something awful is going to befall. And of course, that often is the case, but that's not the good news that we're called to proclaim. Yeah. Um, more importantly, though, because you have these passages that speak of wars, wars and rumors of wars, and things like that, these get extrapolated through pretzel theology into <laughs> there has to be a mega war in the Middle East before Jesus can come back. All right, so are we are we holding to the blessed hope, consummation of all things and the return of Christ? Yes, amen. We, so we want we want Jesus to come back. Yes, we do. But there has to be a mega war in the Middle East for, for that to happen. Well, so be it then. What then happens is you find Christians who, look, it's hard to be a blessed peacemaker who are the children of God when you're kind of secretly hoping for a mega war in the Middle East because you've been convinced that that's necessary before Jesus can come back. Um, I just want to say as clearly as I can, there is no war that needs to precede the coming of the Lord, and so you can just stop being pro-war. <laughs> wow. Amen and wow. amen. <laughs> oh. Yeah, that's so good. Yeah, absolutely. You know, even with that, there's and, – and you've touched on this and – uh, and Brad and, and even I in some of our writing, that there's almost this secret glee that those non-Christians are going to get theirs. And nobody would actually say it, but it, it kind of becomes a paradigm through which some folks read the Gospels. I'll tell you a story. Maybe, oh, it's been years now. I, I told you, you know, we go to Israel a lot, mm-hmm. most every year. We'll be there the entire month of March, coming up next month. Um, I was there with two young men, two cousins, two first cousins. Uh, They were the grandsons of a Pentecostal preacher who was also with us on this trip. And one day, because they were young, they were like 19 or something like that. uh, We had a little time, and I said, come on, I'll show you something really cool. And so I just took them because they could move fast. And I just, we just dashed from our hotel there and, and I took them up on the Mount of Olives. I mean, we take our whole group up there, but I, you know, going to show them a different angle. So we're up there and they, I'm showing them, I'm talking to them and they said, oh, I can't wait for Jesus to come back so we can kick butt. <laughs> That's exactly what they said. And I sat them down. I'll say their name. I'm not going to say their last name, but Joe and Max. I sat Joe and Max down and gave him some version of the teaching I just gave. And then, you know, I said, okay, I mean, you need to examine your heart here. What's going on? And I tell this story in my book, A Farewell to Mars, 
Uh, I tell this story because I'm so happy to tell you that Joe and Max both are both now in full-time ministry, and they're totally not like that. They've, they totally see that as their foolish, childish self, hmm. and they have turned away from any kind of notion that there should be some sort of glee in our heart about, you know, that sort of thing. And so, yeah, but, but yeah, it's, 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 um, it's indicative of something that is not healthy within our soul if we relish the idea yes. of suffering in the name of God afflicted upon others. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I, th- I think. I mean, Jesus, in what I think clearly is actually the fulfillment of what he's talking about, it. every time he talks about it, he weeps. He isn't I was, that's exactly what I was just going to say. When we when we look at the passages you brought to our attention today, it's Jesus weeping, not gloating, not saying, ha ha, you guys yeah, are going to get yours. Weep. It's a weeping of, oh so man, I weep. wish you would understand. I wish find you would. One more real quick. Um, let's, let's find it here. Um, Okay, so this is this is Jesus has already been condemned to death. He's carrying his cross. Uh, as they led him, well, and the, the Simon of Cyrene thing happens, and there are women that were following him, beating their breasts and wailing for him. But Jesus turned to them and said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and your children, for the days are surely coming when they shall say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that have never borne, the breasts that never nursed. Then he began to say to, and then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and the hills cover us. For if they do this when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? I mean, it's all connected in that's, that's Jesus lamenting in Jerusalem, Jerusalem in Luke 12. It's Jesus weeping uh, as he enters the city on Palm Sunday. It's Jesus weeping over these weeping women as he goes to his own crucifixion. It's as if he's saying, What's happening to me is going to happen to your your sons are going to yeah. weep. For, don't weep for me. Weep for your sons. Yeah. And so uh, every time Jesus seems to think or contemplate or talk about this is with deep sorrow. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. Also, even I need, uh, I need to say that, that post-Holocaust or, you know, that would be the most extreme, but post just far, far, far too many centuries of Christian anti-Semitism, we have to be really careful about how we talk about this because it's too easy for us to sound like it's God's direct violent vengeance upon Jerusalem for, as a whole, not embracing Jesus. Rather, and in Luke's uh, all of that discourse, Jesus says, for these are days of vengeance. But I describe, I, I want people to understand, it's Roman vengeance. Jesus foresees it. It's consequential. Jesus is just saying, look, you choose. Let me give you, let me give you another passage. So in Luke 13, uh, they tell Jesus, they report to Jesus that Pilate has executed some people, mingled, there's poetic language used, mingled their blood with their sacrifices. In other words, what had happened, some Galilean Jews had come to the temple to sacrifice. They'd staged some kind of uprising against the Roman occupation of the temple, and they were put to death. And what does Jesus say? He says, oh, yeah, I know. Do you, do you think that, do you think that they were worse sinners 
than everyone, than all the Galileans? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you shall all perish in the same way. And then he goes on and says, and what about the 18 upon whom the Tower of Siloam fell? So there was some sort of building collapse in Jerusalem. 18 people got killed. And Jesus, do you think they were worse sinners than all the people in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you'll all perish in the same way. What is Jesus saying? We hear that now, and and people think, oh, he's talking about post-mortem hell or something like that. No, Jesus is saying, unless you guys turn away from your idea that God is going to authorize your violent revolution against Rome, you're all going to die by Roman swords and collapsing buildings. And that's exactly what happened. And that's exactly what continues to happen, if I may say. Uh, You know, I I finished teaching... uh, the previous chapter, 23, and and pointed out that, yeah, there's the woes. We see Jesus in the strongest language ever, which I think has a lot to do with the house is on fire, so he's not whispering. He's saying, hey. But yeah. at the end, the same passage that, that we have uh, in Luke, and he, and he weeps over Jerusalem, and he's compassion. And, but he, I'm with you. I just want to underline what you said for our listeners, that it's not like, well, God's going to get you, but rather, to use Walter Wink's term, you you have chosen the myth of redemptive violence. You yeah. have chosen to keep poking the bear for your rights. And that's why this has happened. It's not because God's ticked off. And, and I think that he's weeping because he's tried and tried and tried, and they just don't see it. And he can look ahead and see, that's what's going to happen. You have chosen the myth rather than, yeah, than, than the the Sermon on the Mount. Frankly, right. Yeah. So all I'm doing is underlining what you said, I guess. But it it hit me really strongly that Matthew structured that very polemic chapter in such a way that it finished with pain and passion and pathos. Yeah, yeah, Matthew 23, which is the, <laughs> that is a rant. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that, that connects with 24 in that Jesus has already pronounced judgment in various ways that the temple age is coming to an end. Yeah. The temple age, the temple hierarchy, the temple itself. And 23 tells you why it, it's so hopelessly corrupt. And then 24 anticipates the manner in which it will end. But you're correct. We have to do sort of a deft move to understand this is not an active act of retribution on the part of God, but it's just the consequence of a trajectory away from the way of God. Yes. If, you, if you go that way, then this is what will happen. And it seems like they had all the, the institution itself had reached the point of no return. Yeah. They were just not going to turn around. Yeah. So Jesus warns those that have ears. This is you that hear when you see this happening, get out, leave. Yeah. Because what you've been told is that that, you know, this is eternal and, and God is with us and he'll fight for us and Jerusalem will never fall again. And Jesus says, no, it's just the opposite. It is going to fall and it's going to happen within a generation. So when it begins to happen, while you still got time, get out. And how transferable is some of that to uh, 21st century North America? You know, right. so yes. transferable. Yeah. Wow. 
Well, this has been fantastic, Brian. Thank you. I th- I thank you so much for for spending time with us, uh, and I really I genuinely cannot wait for you guys to get here, and we'll all just <laughs> we'll have a great time. time. We're gonna have an amazing time. Yeah. Uh, a reminder to our listeners: hurry up, register now. Uh, we're getting a lot of people signing up for that trip to Santa Fe. By the way, um, <laughs> register beautifulgospelconference.com. You can register. By the way, we've got it set up. Um, that you can have breakfast on site and lunch on site uh, just so you don't miss a moment, but also so you can just spend time with folks. Uh, and truth be told, um, the hotel is not far from uh, from where the conference is happening, but in terms of restaurants and stuff, there's not a lot going on. So I would encourage you as you register, sign up for the, the breakfast and the lunch. They're like super cheap. They're cheaper than what you'd spend at Chick-fil-A or whatever. Uh, and uh, you're going to get time just to be with one another, to share with each other what, what the Lord's been saying, revealing to you. Uh, and I think you're going to leave with some new best friends. So it's yeah, great. Uh, yeah. So May 11 to 14. May 11 to 14, Albuquerque, New Mexico. Be there. We're going to be here. God bless you. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks, again, Brian. Brian. Thank you. Have a good one. Thank you. All right.